Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is another warm and sunny morning here in the capital is Alex Parr. Alex is an established business leader and managing director of four businesses, which include Robertson Languages International, Wolfstone, CityLingual and Voicebox Multimedia Limited. Um, Alex, a very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Oh, very welcome. Good morning, everyone. Yes, thank you, Alex, for joining us on the show. It's a lovely day for it, isn't it? Um, I think it a is, good place. It is gorgeous. Maybe a little bit too hot for, <laughs> for some people working in offices. Yeah, it's exactly right. Um, I have my sort of makeshift desk in my home office at the moment, and I'm feeling it here. I've got two fans on, so it's certainly feeling the impact. Um, and I think we should sort of discuss the context of that, shouldn't we, first, um, given that we are still in the COVID-19 pandemic, even though restrictions have been lifted here in England. Um, and we have been in the grip of the global health crisis now for the best part of the last 15, 16 months. Um, if we sort of go way back to March 2020 and then look at the pandemic period as a whole, to what extent has it affected you and your businesses, would you say, Alex, to start with? Um, I think the initial first three months of the pandemic um, when everything was locked down was the toughest across the different businesses. Um, you know, we, we had to very quickly scramble together um, a policy for all of our staff to work from home um, and make sure that we still had the same processes and security levels that our clients are, um, that they need from their businesses. Um, so that was definitely the most difficult, difficult time. Um, I think out of all the businesses, Robertson Languages International was the one that was most affected um, because 100% of their lessons were face-to-face and that had to stop immediately um, and we had to very quickly move to an online using um, video conference um, software such as kind of Zoom and Skype um, and those types of things. Um, so that was definitely the, the hardest period and the one where we saw um, the biggest drop in revenue. Um, but thankfully, the government uh, schemes were really helpful, um, and we did take those up, um, including loaning some staff and using the bounce back loans. Um, and that support really helped us through that difficult period. Um, and then when we kind of moved on to after the summer, um, we started to see business um, start to increase. Um, and the group itself actually grew in 2020, which was a little bit of a surprise after those first three months, where... There wasn't a lot of revenue coming through and a lot of our clients were unable to pay uh, for jobs that they'd done in the past. Um, but thankfully, we had a we had a strong end of the year um, and across the group, we were able to grow. Um, with Voicebox especially being um, an, an area that, um, that did incredibly well, um, we weren't expecting it because everything had gone online. It affected Robertson languages in a negative way. Mm. Um, but Voicebox, with their live capture, software, subtitles and voiceover services, they saw a massive increase in business. So it was a it was a strange situation where we had some businesses doing well, some not so well, um, but thankfully the support that um, allowed all of them to carry on um, and we've not had to um, 
make any kind of negative decisions in terms of the businesses. Um, everybody came back from furlough. Um, and we're seeing around about a 20% uplift in business this year. So it has bounced back quite quickly. That's really positive. And uh, just sort of focusing on Robertson for a moment. Um, I know, of course, the sort of move to online did lead to that sort of revenue drop, if you'd like. But um, how was it sort of adapting to sort of online delivery initially? And was it something that anybody both sort of in terms of those working within the business and those using your services actually took too well, do you think? Well, thankfully, uh, a bit of luck. We were developing um, RLife 365, which is like an online platform which allows um, our students who are learning a foreign language mm-hmm. to be able to get resources from there and use apps so that they're learning the language in between lessons. So that was that was helpful. Um, and most people took it took to um, going from face-to-face teaching to online learning really well. Um, I think after the first six weeks, we had like a 90% uptake. So the ones doing the face-to-face moving to online of course, with anything new, there were teething issues. You know, the teachers had to get around their heads the differences between having to teach online and especially in the group scenario uh, where you have to be very organized and, and, and have interactive tools to be able to make the lessons engaging. Um, but as I said, after about the first three months, we had 98% of all of our lessons online um, and the remaining 2% just put theirs on hold for a few months to see what was going on. Um, so it was it was great, but we did have a reduction in new business. So so companies a, a lot of um, a lot of the work that we do with Robertson's languages is um, to do with the relocation business. So you know senior managers moving from um, one country to another country to manage a team out there, and that obviously during a pandemic when nobody's allowed to travel, there, there is nobody moving. Um, so we saw a bit of a reduction in work from that that side, but at least the 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 lessons that had already been booked and people who had already moved, mm. they did carry on using the service, which was great. And sort of since you're based in Swansea, if I'm right in saying the Robertson Languages business, um, what sort of is the situation that you're looking at now in terms of that sort of face-to-face education delivery? Is that something that looks like it may be able to sort of come back or is sort of back at the moment? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's slowly coming back. And um, The funny thing is a lot of the senior managers like it like doing it remotely now mm. so you know there's been that little bit of a change in attitude they it's more flexible for them you know they could do a lesson while they're you know in an airport waiting to go somewhere or in between lessons without having to um you know go to somewhere particularly or it's just a lot more flexible for them um so what i'm expecting is probably around about 40 percent of the lessons will stay online um and then over the next six months or so we'll see more and more we'll see the other 60 percent slowly migrating back to those face-to-face lessons um, and it tends to be the groups that like to have the face-to-face lessons um, and the one-to-ones seem to be looking more at, at staying online um, which I think is is fairly reflective of, of what's going to happen in society as a whole I think we're going to have a lot more um, co-working where you work some days in the office, some from home, maybe just popping in for training and uh, meetings and collaboration type things. But when you're actually having to get your head down, there's no reason why people can't do that from home. So I think it mirrors quite well um, how we're going to change in the UK our, our working styles. 
shows that we understand as well, doesn't it? That either one of the approaches doesn't necessarily fit all people, does it? So you have to sort of have that mix. And I think in all walks of life, within industry, within education, it's going to be a real part of the way that we do business in this country going forward, isn't it? That sort of hybrid, flexible approach. Exactly. I mean, it just makes total sense, really, because, you know, we get these... um we get these bottlenecks at 9am and 5pm with people coming in and out of the um, offices. You know, everybody knows about the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the pollutions in the air from all those traffic going in. So if you can have people not coming in as much and stagger the times that they're coming in, um, it's going to make towns and city planning a lot a lot easier um, to manage and also these, these CO2, CO2 targets easier to, to, to meet. So, yeah, we've, we're just going through um, um, a change in the office, so we're having it completely refurbed to, to kind of make the best out of this new way of working. We're going to have more collaborative spaces, more meeting rooms, um, so that people can come in in groups and have training sessions. And, you know, that's where we see the, the office being a benefit, that it becomes a hub for the, for the workers rather than a place where they do their, the majority of their work. So it'll be used mainly for for training and, and as I said collaborative type meetings. Yeah that's really positive and I suppose also having the sort of blended approach as well it's going to be quite beneficial for the mental health and well-being side of things isn't it because those issues have been significantly amplified by the crisis and as good as digital platforms have been in keeping us connected we don't always get some certain social cues that sort of transmit over digital platforms do we so having that sort of contact in an office environment, in a building, that's also really, really important on that side of things. And I think maybe pre-pandemic, we maybe took the sort of social side of work for granted, didn't we? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think working from home 100% of the time and never actually seeing anybody and just looking at screens all day is really not good long-term for your mental health. Um, So there does need to be that balance. You know, if businesses decide that actually they don't need their office anymore, um, and everybody's going to be working from home. I think it's important to still have some, you know, have social events, um, you know, maybe once a quarter meeting up as a team to discuss, um, you know, what's happened the last three months and what, what the plans are for the next three months. Um, but I don't think we can go 100% one way or another. You know, I think I think that hybrid way of working is probably the best, the best mix at the moment because um, there's drawbacks to doing 100% in the office and drawbacks to doing 100% working from home. I think that's very, very right. I think there are drawbacks to both. And therefore, I think that blended approach is probably going to be the way that most industries tend to go with. Um, and obviously, the benefits of flexible working are just one of the many lessons that I think we've taken from the crisis, which maybe add a little bit of a silver lining to what's been a dark cloud over all of us for seemingly so long now. Um, are there any other sort of key takeaways other than the technological advancements that you maybe can say that you've learned from this last 16 or so months? Um, we've definitely had to learn quite quickly how to manage people who are remote. Um, mm-hmm. We do things like the managers have a, um, a weekly catch-up on a Monday morning. Um, and that's not just to talk about work. We talk about you know what we did at the weekend as well to keep that kind of social interaction going on. Um, like a game, an online game that we play with all the staff so that we can have um, a bit of a laugh and a joke as well as it being hard, hard grass. Um, and once a quarter, we've had to do the quarterly meeting um, online. So it was, it was, it was finding ways of making that engaging um, and getting the, the the staff to join. So that was that was a, a change for us. Um, and technology-wise, we're obviously pushing ROI three six five, and we're adding new 
um, uh, developments to that all the time so that people who are learning a language remotely um, feel that they've got support um, and there's different ways of them learning rather than being the same uh, day in, day out. Um, and for VoiceBox, actually, we've um, we've come up with um, a software called Dr. Captions because there's so many meetings happening online at the moment. Um, for inclusive, inclusivity reasons and accessibility, um, a lot of them need to um, be live captioned. Um, so we've come up with some automatic AI software um, that can do that at a fairly low cost. So even if you're, you know, like a charity or a dance school and you don't have massive budgets like the big multinational companies, mm. you can still um, do these and everybody can still um, participate um, by having the, the live captions on there and then being able to understand what's being said in the meetings. So it's definitely made us think a little bit differently about the services um, that we offer our clients and also just how we manage staff and how we make sure that they're, they're happy um, and that they feel included in the business. Yeah, plenty of thinking outside the box, isn't it? And um, as hopefully we can sort of gradually move out of social restrictions all across the UK over the uh, the next uh, few months, um, what are some of your priorities going to be at your four businesses over the uh, the next 12 months, do you think? And where indeed do you see yourselves this time in 2022, just before we wrap things up? Well, the big thing is the office refurb, so that should be done at the end of August. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, taking up a little bit of time at the moment just to make sure that that, that works well. Um, and then, um, I guess, a little bit of fun. We're having our first um, get-together that we've been able to do um, at the end of August um, because the rules have reduced. So we're having our summer barbecue, which, which will be some fun. Um, and then from a business standpoint, um, we are, we've purchased a German company um, in March uh, 2021. We tend to do things like that when there's things like pandemics and global recessions. We tend to invest quite heavily in sales and marketing uh, to get us through it. Um, so, yeah, we were lucky enough to buy a German company uh, back in March. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be growing that. Um, and we're also um, setting up our first U.S. office. And we've got two sales staff there. So it'll be growing that as well. Um, so every year, you know, we're always looking to to improve our services, um, expand our profit share, um, and there'll be more of the same same that year um, as things start to open. Um, but the good news, I don't know if all businesses have felt that, but it does feel more buoyant, especially the last few months. Mm. Uh, we've had two record-breaking months in May and June. Um, so for that to happen so quickly after a global pandemic um, shows that the, the economy is recovering um, and I'm hoping that all businesses will see a, a turn to the upwards in, the, in in what they're doing and, and the sales that they're bringing in. Yeah, the signs are positive, aren't they? I mean, even things as simple as recruitment have been going up um, in their proliferation over the course of the uh, the last three months. So let's hope that those signs of recovery are still going to be forthcoming. We're not going to see any drop off there. Um, and it seems like you've got plenty yourself as well, Alex, to get your teeth stuck into over the coming months as well. So certainly best exactly. of luck um, for all four exactly. of your businesses. And uh, lastly, as well, just before we do uh, close, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on because the pandemic is still ongoing, but I'm confident the better days are ahead of us for sure. Yes, I hope so. Um, yeah, things are looking good. I hope it's going to be a really strong bounce back um, for the British economy. Um, looking at the figures that England bring out, it does look like it's going in that direction. Um, so, yeah, hopefully we'll have a good end uh, to 2021. Absolutely, fingers crossed. Um, thank you for joining us on the programme, Alex, and I'd love to potentially catch up with you in future just to see how things are getting on with the businesses. Uh, but until then, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on. 
You too. It was a pleasure to welcome Alex Parr, Managing Director of Robertson Languages International, Wolfstone City Lingual and Voicebox Multimedia onto the show today. Um, next up on the programme, uh, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be sharing his views on the events of the pandemic and his hopes for the weeks and the months ahead as we enter a period of economic recovery, we hope. That will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council 
will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there's a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, 
they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm. 
mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months, when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports, and this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will 
make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of 
low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it, it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond 
Labour members that has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways... Uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset 
and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm-hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.